Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending June 12. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you will hear uh, our conversation with Greg Mullins about the National Bushfire Summit. Uh, we also had a chat about board games. I wrote a choose your own adventure or maybe a choose your own misery and uh <laughs> And we also included our end-of-week quiz. Uh, also, Dr Jen swung by for Weird Science, talking the science of conspiracy theories. And we talked to the head of publishing at the Wheeler Centre, Sophie Black, about the uh, their next chapter scheme. Melbourne's own Triple R. Kicking off today, the inaugural National Bushfire and Climate Summit 2020 will convene former fire and emergency chiefs, ex-defence personnel, Indigenous experts and climate scientists to strengthen Australia's response to rising bushfire danger. Spearheading the summit is Greg Mullins and the former New South Wales Fire and Rescue Commissioner and founding member of Emergency Leaders for Climate Action joins us on the line now. Greg, welcome to Breakfasters. Good morning. Um, can you take us back to when you called for this summit in December? And with all your experience, what was unprecedented about the bushfire season and what's at stake if we don't have a new approach? Yes, well, unfortunately, um, together with, at the time, 22 other fire and emergency service chiefs um, from every state and territory and every fire service in Australia, we looked at what was happening with the weather, climate change, driving extreme weather, longer fire seasons, um, many more days of very high fire danger and above. And 2019-20 was shaping up as a bushfire disaster. We tried to warn the government. We weren't listened to. Um, and in December, we were very frustrated with the lack of leadership from the federal government. And we said, well, look, we'll call a summit. Um, you won't, so we will. And this is the result of it. And look, I'm actually really pleased they've got the Royal Commission. Victorian government's got an inquiry into the bushfires, New South Wales government, and there's a Senate inquiry. So this will complement those efforts. How does it differ from an inquiry or, or, or something like that? Look, quite simply, so we've got about 5,000 people registered to listen in tonight. Um, so there's huge interest. Um, we'll be talking to people who may not get to talk to the, the Royal Commission. So I've got two community forums, one um, for the for New South Wales, people who went through the fires, one for Victoria. We want to get those raw experiences from people who lost their homes and lost loved ones and allow them to have a voice. We're talking to Indigenous fire experts about cultural burning, which might, you know hasn't had a lot of focus in the past. And foreign emergency chiefs who, frankly, haven't been listened to in the past. No, I'm heartened by the COVID-19 response because the government listened to scientists, listened to experts and acted. They need to do that on climate change and fires now. Yeah. So so can you um, – so th the panel tonight is available to the public? Yes, that's right. Um, they can go to our website, emergencyleadersforclimateaction.org.au, and there's a big button they can – Press on and um, please join us. We've got a, a great panel, a friend of mine, Ken Pimlot, who's a former Californian fire chief. They're going through the same as us or worse in some ways. Oliver Costello, the CEO of Firesticks Alliance, Indigenous Corporation. Uh, Cheryl Durant, former head of Defence Preparedness. Naomi Brown, former CEO of Australasian Foreign Emergency Service Authorities Council. Uh, Professor Leslie Hughes and Amanda McKenzie, the CEO of the Climate Council, mm. Kerry O'Brien from the AB, former ABC, is uh, hosting the event. So, what are your concerns 
looking into the future, uh, given all of your decades of experience, how come, and now you've retired and, and yet you're still deeply, deeply involved. What, what is, what is the threat? Uh, you know, obviously this summer was nightmarish. What, what would happen if there is not a new approach? Like I, to clarify, you know, I'd, I'd seen the paper recently that bushfire victims are still living in tents and sheds as they wait for debris to be cleared. Can you paint a picture of what might be in store for Australia if we don't pay closer attention? Look, look absolutely. So I, I was fighting these fires as a volunteer, so so-called retirement for me is on the back of a fire truck. Um, and, you know, I was out yesterday at car accidents locally with the RFS, but... Um, and I, I've, I've been fighting fires for 49 years now. My father was a fighting fires from 1939. He was a volunteer for 63 years. And we just watched things change. So, as I said before, longer fire seasons. One of the big things um, that really captured people's imaginations, I suppose, and scared the hell out of me, was um, fire-generated storms. Now, between 1978 and 2001, there were two recorded in Australia. Since 2001, 78, uh, there were 15 in March in the high country in Victoria. Um, and I was under a few of them at fires in the Blue Mountains on New Year's Eve at um, Batemans Bay. It's just frightening. The fire behaviour, you can't do anything about it. I saw animals, um, kangaroos. I've never seen, sorry listeners, um, child alert, <laughs> block their ears. I've never seen kangaroos on fire coming out of the bush before because they know where to go and they're fast, but they couldn't escape and we nearly didn't escape. So this is, I've, I was in California in November at a fire over there in Sonoma County. Ken Pimlot, the former chief there, was telling me about the year before where they lost 20,000 homes and nearly 100 dead. Fire agencies can't handle the ferocity of these fires anymore. Uh, the science is very clear. It's driven by climate change. Uh, the weather has changed because of climate, so much less rain. Um, Southeast Australia, 11% reduction over 20 years, much fiercer droughts, much higher temperatures, stronger winds, lower humidity. So really, um, we have to do something about climate change if we want to survive into the future. Can you talk to us a bit about the efforts you went to in informing the the government of the potential danger that we were in? Look, I, I could. I think it's on the record. Um, in a way, I don't really want to because I think we need to put the past behind us because it aggravates the government greatly when we keep going back to the many letters we wrote, the eventual meeting that we had with no outcome in December. Um, but, again, I... I'd come back to what, what they've done with COVID-19. I think they need a pat in the back. I think they've done a really good job um, in, protect, in protecting us. And that was because the exact opposite of the fires and climate change, they listened to the experts and the science and they acted on it. So climate change is a mm. slow-moving disaster and we're seeing these spikes now that were pre predicted, everyone predicted them, they're happening. It's not, oh, wow, this came out of nowhere. No, it didn't. Um, mm. I've seen it coming. Others have seen it coming. The scientists have warned for decades. It's time to act. It's time to wean ourselves off 
coal, oil and gas because it's killing us. Mm. Have you seen any indication so far from the government that they will be changing the way that they've approached these things since the COVID outbreak? Look, I, I, I believe there has been a change. And I think even the Prime Minister initially saying, you know, you can't say climate change has anything to do with these fires. He changed his tune through December and said, clearly, it's one of the factors and then it became uh, one of the main factors in the terms of reference for the Royal Commission. So I think that's uh, really positive. Mm. Um, so I, I've got great hope for the future. You can't do otherwise. You can't give up. You can't become frustrated and um, embittered. We'll just keep trying to work with the authorities, um, speaking out because the current fire chiefs can't. They're not allowed to. I wasn't allowed to when I was there, and that's, in a way, fair enough. You've got to stick with government policy, but this is too dangerous to keep quiet about. So uh, we've got the Royal Commission, the Bushfire Royal Commission, currently underway. There are also several inquiries. This summit aims to complement that, but also you'll be back next year. Yeah, we'll have a wind-up. Well, we hope we can have a face-to-face summit next year. Um, So hopefully no second second bout of COVID and um, all the measures being put in place, I'm sure that'll be the case. So we'll have a face-to-face summit where we'll update people. But what we're hoping is that we'll create networks um, between interested people through these summit roundtables where they can stay in touch and share information and grow, um, grow the pressure, if need be, on the government to take action on climate change, which is driving increased natural disasters. Mm. And just finally, you started out volunteering uh, and now you're volunteering again. Does your family just think, come on, give it a rest? Like, (laughs) can we have Um, you on the weekend? Look, um, my wife's a nurse. Um, You know, my my whole family were public servants. Um, Dad was a public works department mum was a school teacher and you know he was a volunteer firefighter I I grew up serving and helping people and I can't get it out of my blood and um, and that's one of the reasons I'm speaking up because I know things that everybody needs to know and if I cop a bit of flack well so be it. (laughs) Well the inaugural National Bushfire and Climate Summit 2020 commences today Uh, you can go to emergencyleadersforclimateaction.org au for more information and we've been speaking with former new south wales fire and rescue commissioner greg mullins greg thanks so much for joining us thank you triple r on fm digital online and via the app because i had um more than just cats with me on the weekend mm. we had a, a you know friends come and stay another friends come and visit um we got to play board games <laughs> Big fan of a board game. Do you, do you play it much? No, probably not. No, we do. I, I, no, I just, uh, you know, whenever, if I had all the people around and I went to the board game, my first instinct would be, are there all the pieces? I'd be nervous that, uh, you know, because people pack them up at the end of the night when it's, you know, you're done with it, it all goes in the box. And uh, anyway, it just kind of fills me with a bit of nerves. Yeah. My, not um, in our house. Not, not with Kathy. Packing it up. We, I was gonna. Yeah. Sorry, I was just gonna say we're not really a board game. I love Scrabble, but we're not really a board game family. And my friends aren't board game people either, so I don't play them very often. I think the last time I played one was when I came and stayed with you and Kath. 
uh, and it was a game about taking over the world and it was so bad. We just stopped after oh. like 20 minutes. It was so complicated. It was way too convoluted. It was like board game mistake 101. It was risk. We played risk. Do you know risk, Daniel? I've heard of it. It's yeah. so convoluted. There'll be, there'll be a lot of people listening going, oh, it's not that complicated. Once you get going, it's fine. After a bottle of wine, when you're like, let's play a little fun game, I was thinking like trouble, something yeah. easy. But hungry, it was, hungry hippos. Yeah, hungry, hungry this hippos. Is, <laughs> this is the problem. Like I think a, I reckon a good board game is something that's easily explained. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then there's there is there is really good board games that, Yes, after a bit of explanation and after you've played it for a bit, or maybe if you play it with an expert and they can help you, then it it gets more fun. Once you know the game, then obviously it's, you know, it's kind of, it's good. So we had an example of both games, like that we played on the weekend. There was this game uh, that was, we all loved because it was very easy to start playing because it was just a a game where you get five cards and each card has a, a moment in history and then mm-hmm. you have to put them in order. And that's essentially it. Like it's fun. And, and then like you present it, go, I think this happened before this and I think this happened before this. And then people can look at your cards and go, and then there's a bell. That's what makes the game fun. Obviously the game needed a bit of extra zing to it. So they added a ding to it. So they've just got this bell that you go, ding, I reckon that one's out of order. And then you swap them and then if you get it right, you get their cards. Oh, I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it was that was simple and fun. Easy, you know, you can just play one or two rounds or you can keep going, you know. So, but in the afternoon, one afternoon, <clears throat> my friend bought another board game. And this is... This is my friend Kyron, who um, his partner, Reese and I are really good friends. And Kyron and Kath get along really well. And Reese and I like to think that Kyron and Kath are the same. Like in, in the relationships where, you know, we have similar kind of go, oh, yeah, we can see. The dynamic is mirrored. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so... Kath and Kyron are fans of the, the long board game. <laughs> Let's, oh no, we've got, yeah, let's, we can figure this out. This is a good game. It's a, once you get going, it's a great game. Uh, but this game that they bought out was called Pandemic. There's a game called oh my Pandemic. God. I don't know if you've ever played the board game Pandemic in the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> like it's, it's so weird. Is this an so, old game? When was it made? Oh, 10 years ago. I think it, the one, like, best board game in 2007 or something like that. Oh. I was saying. Um, and so the three of us started playing. It was Kyra and Kath and I that started playing because Reese was cooking dinner. And I just remember constantly looking at Reese because like, he'd say, yeah, I'm not really into this game. Like, it's it just takes a while. But, yeah, you guys play. And then throughout the game, I'd be looking at him just going, we're the same. <laughs> we feel the same about this game. Meanwhile, Kyron and Kath are having a great time. Um, and it's weird because it has, like, there's, like, three, um, you know, viruses. Oh, my God, there's actual it. viruses. Jesus. Yeah, like little drawings. And I'm like, that one's the coronavirus. There's the coronavirus is there. It had a little drawing of the coronavirus. It's like 10 years ago that this game was made. Well, what is it? 
Um, so do you like roll a six and you can break quarantine or something? <laughs> But here's the other weird thing about it. Nobody wins. You play together. (laughs) No one does win in a pandemic. That's the thing. I know. You play together and you either eradicate (laughs) the the pandemic or you don't. And it's, but you have to work together. And I'm like, what is going, and it's just, there's so many. And then Kate and Joel rocked up, like when we we just started playing the game and they're like, what's it? And I'm like, you can't. Because they're like, oh, we've only just started. If you wanted to join in, I'm like, no one can join in on this now. It's I don't care if you've only one move in. It's still no one can join in. This is you have to explain it all again. And then we're like trying to set the table around them, and it's just like this is this is the wrong time to bring out this board game. Can, can you really? die in this game pandemic? Like, is yeah, there we a... all died. Really, <laughs> died. But that's the other good. There's one good thing about this game is it only goes for a certain amount of time. So once there's like a pile of cards that you draw on, like you pick up a card or have a country on and go, well, that country's infected now. And then like you pick up another card and it'll be like um, epidemic. And then you have to like, and then it spreads even more. Makes you anyway. wonder if this is what like Boris Johnson has been doing as he's <laughs> guiding light during this whole thing. Fun. But yeah, I picked I picked up a like two epidemics in a row. And went, oh, that's it. And anyway, apparently we got very close to eradicating all. We just needed one more turn, but we'd run out of turns, and that was the end of the game. Oh well. I was I was at a, a person's house, and uh, I saw a board game, Secret Hitler. Oh my god! Yeah, no, I don't believe you. It's a true game. No, it's a real. It's a. It's about uh, well political intrigue in German Germany in the thirties. These are weird games to have on bookshelves. What era? What era are we talking? Pandemic Secret Hitler. What? I think it's new, isn't it? Oh my god! It looked like it? a new box. Sounds new. Sounds new. It doesn't involve like, someone dress. It's not like a dress up thing. It's not like a someone's <laughs> pretending to be. <laughs> we didn't play it. Okay. Uh, um, although I do regret not really leaning on it. Although you, you don't want to sound too passionate about wanting to play Secret Hitler. Yeah. Um, but also, it was the was the idea was pandemic. Uh, was it played in the spirit of oh look how you know how unusual and wrong or was it like this is actually a really good game and what better time? Uh, I think it was just um, they thought it was a, a good game and it would just oh it happened to be you know I oh, know it's called shut down the world it's about, but yeah we're, we're having one right now but it's just it's just a really good game. I know we're okay? having one it's a right good now. Game. Just get into it. Triple R. Dr. Jen is once again with us to explain how the scientific truth is out there. Morning, Dr. Jen. Good morning, my friends. It's lovely to see you. Always. Nice to see you too. And, uh, yeah, I thought we should finally come around to this idea of talking about coronavirus conspiracy theories. I've been, you know, biding my time, wondering when would be a good time to to tackle the topic. Do you want to share your favourite conspiracy theories with me? There are plenty out there. Anything to do with 5G. (laughs) Yeah, I know. People have been burning down 5G towers in the hope that that would get rid of coronavirus. That seems a little bit far-fetched. Yeah, I don't understand it. I, I, I... I haven't sort of bothered to look into it. Oh, well, you came to the right place. (laughs) 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 And you're well done. 
There was also, did anyone get to see the pandemic video before it was taken down? It was, um, it really kind of exploded on the internet in early May. I think it got, I don't know, a million or two million views before YouTube took it down. It was basically arguing that, you know, that there were shadowy forces that were manipulating this virus in order to control people. That was a pretty good one. And of course, it was all about the UK and the US governments that they introduced coronavirus in as a way to make money out of a potential vaccine, which of course we don't actually have. Mm. So that wasn't that successful. Bad business idea. Mm. All about the CIA, you know, that it was a bioweapon introduced um, trying to wage war on China. Another pretty scary one. So, yeah, there's, there's so many um, theories out there. And so I thought we'd better work out why that happens. And it turns out that throughout human history, whenever we find ourselves in times of crisis, where kind of the, you know, the cultural norms are questioned and, um, you know, the powers of authority are brought into question, you know, whenever we find ourselves in periods of, of confusion and upheaval, there are conspiracy theories there yeah. to, to save us. Isn't that mm. lucky? Because they're so helpful and productive. But Yeah, we're blessed. You know, whenever there's a terrorist attack or a natural disaster or a pandemic or a war, people have looked throughout history um, and all of a sudden there's this big influx of conspiracy theories. And it turns out lots of them are health-related. So um, there was a big government poll only a few years ago that found that 15% of people in Spain believe that HIV was created and spread deliberately around the world. This is two years ago or last year. People still believe that about HIV which is pretty crazy. And um, Zika virus, there were lots of theories about that. So I, I want your best guess. Why is it that when we find ourselves in turmoil and crisis and fear, why is it that we turn to conspiracy theories? Um, Put your philosopher's hats on. Is it is it to map on a story uh, and fit together chaos and make it cohesive so that we can comprehend it? Yeah, totally nailed it. Daniel, ten, ten points. Ten <laughs> it turns out to be really fundamentally simple and deep at the same time. Basically, whenever we feel anxious and frightened and out of control and bad things are happening in the world, we need a story. You know, humans are storytellers. Mm -hmm. Everything around us makes more sense when we have a story to explain it. And so we come up with stories that give us back a sense of control. You know, if the world feels really unstable and complicated and scary, if you can come up with a story that's simple and makes sense to you, you know, to explain it, and it gives us someone to blame, right? Because mm. all these terrible things happen in the world that we don't understand. If you can have somebody to blame, it just makes us feel much better. And, and you know, the more powerless and, and anxious and alienated people feel, the more likely they are to believe in conspiracy theories. So quarantine anybody, mm, out of control, time. powerless, alienated. If someone on the internet is telling you, well, you know, this is this crazy person's fault or this is the fault of 5G or this is the fault of, of the CIA – I can. I mean, I don't believe any of them, but I can totally see why people do, don't you reckon? Oh, totally, because you think about if you shrink that down to a more minute level, it's what we do day to day with our anxieties. Like if I yeah. am feeling um, I've got some bad things going on in my life, I can sit up at night and get quite anxious and my brain will spiral and create you know, kind of fake conversations with people or, you know, situations like I'll create my own conspiracy theories about my life to kind of help rationalise my anxiety, if that makes sense. Totally. So in, in, yeah. when you kind of expand that out, it's just like the bigger version of what you sometimes do when you're going down one of those holes in your own head. 
absolutely. And we're storytellers. We love simple narratives. So many, you know, um, cases in history can be explained by the people that, but can be explained by the fact that people hooked on to this simple narrative. And even if it doesn't make logical sense, it doesn't mean it doesn't appeal to our brains. Mm. And there's really clear research to show that the more control we feel over our political circumstances, our social circumstances, our living arrangement, you know, the more control we feel, the less likely we are to believe in conspiracy theories. Yeah, and it seems to me, and maybe I'm this is a conspiracy theory, but <laughs> humans are just sort of pattern recognizing machines, and we're not exactly. particularly skilled at it as well. So yeah. we develop we develop patterns that make sense to us. Yeah, we uh, go through the world looking for patterns, and and one of the other things that I read about, which I thought was really relevant, is as soon as we, you know, that conspiracy theories thrive in, in periods of information overload. As soon as there's so much information out there that you can never feel as though you can read it all, understand it all, get a handle mm. it all, we hone in on little things that make sense to us. And we've talked a lot before about confirmation bias. You know, if you can find pieces of information that back up what you already believe, you know, of course you're going to, of course you're going to believe whatever you're being told that kind of makes sense. Is there, um, really. Yeah. Is there any point in trying to get a conspiracy theorist to believe otherwise? Oh, I think that's such a good question, Jez, and I tried to find good answers to that. Essentially, it's the same as we've discussed about climate change, that facts won't work. If somebody believes what they believe, you can throw thousands of good facts at them and they'll just bounce right off because they won't get under that person's confirmation bias. So similar to the... the um, session we had about climate change conversations, it turns out the best thing you can do is just try and understand where someone is coming from. So ask them, oh, okay, so who, who don't you trust and, and why don't you trust them? And, you know, try and there's, there's no point in trying to convince them. You just should mm. try and understand. But And I think we need to recognise it's actually really dangerous. Health-related conspiracies are really dangerous because if people believe that they're being deceived by public health authorities, why would they follow their advice? So these are people who are not getting vaccinations. They are much more likely to rely on herbal supplements and medicine. They're less likely to wash their hands, follow physical distancing rules, you know, all the things that we now have very good evidence have put Australia in the fantastic position that we are mm. in terms of COVID-19. If you don't believe in the medical authorities, why would you do any of that stuff? Well, that's right. I mean, there's a few things going on, isn't there? Like the WHO giving, you know, conflicting advice on face masks and then what it is to be asymptomatic and yeah. the transmission there. Then you've got conspiracies that actually are true, corporate conspiracies, you know, declassified FBI things or the CIA mind control program. So it's it's not like yep. conspiracies don't exist. I guess it's the line between conspiracy versus conspiracy theory. And I think often the key the key thing that changes our view is time. And and when you're in the middle of a pandemic, time is not on your side. I mean the mm. science you know, that there's been conflicting evidence around masks because the research hadn't been done yet. You know, yeah. we didn't know what we were dealing with. It took time to do the research to be able to give the best advice relating to masks, and that's changed quite quite recently. And some of the things that we can now look back on and say, well, see, it was a conspiracy. We weren't wrong at all. Well, that only became true with a whole lot of time and, and evidence. And, I mean, I think I understand why people spend their lives studying conspiracy theories. I just find it amazing. There's mm -hmm. one researcher in the U.S. who has been, who has looked at conspiracy theories in relation to elections in every U.S. election since 1890. 
And it turns out the people who vote for the losing side in an election are much more likely to believe in conspiracy theories than those on the winning side, which is right. sense. Yeah. But it means whoever's in power in the White House, they're going to have many more conspiracy theories levelled against them than whoever's in opposition, which That's right. really makes sense. But that means you've got this kind of balance. Each time the Republicans or the Democrats have changed who's in power, the kind of the flavour of the conspiracy theories, if you like, has changed. And, it, you know, people have studied the entire course of human history through the conspiracy theories that took root at a particular time. And, you know, they become part of our historical understanding of an event. It's yeah. super interesting. Um, mm. And politically, I guess it can help rationalise how you're out of step with a country that you thought you're in step with mm. totally yeah mm. if you feel like you're in an out group a conspiracy theory is a really good way of garnering support around you and feeling part of a group of people who believe what you do i mean that's very very powerful so i wonder in 10 20 years when we look back on COVID 19 what will be the conspiracy theories that actually last and become part of our real kind of fabric of understanding oh, you know, we're living it now we're mm. part of history guys yeah, Fun. it's ex- it's exciting. To- <laughs> 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 uh, fascinating as always. Thanks heaps, Dr. Jen. Take it easy, guys. Triple R. Each year, the Next Chapter Scheme from the Wheeler Centre picks 10 outstanding writers, matches them with a mentor, connects them with peers and gives them $15,000 each to develop their work. Applications are open now and on the line to tell us about the program is writer, journalist, head of publishing at the Wheeler Centre and passionate friend of Triple R, Sophie Black. Sophie, welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, God, our pleasure. Now, what, what is it about the life of a writer independent of pandemics that makes this initiative so valuable? Okay, so this was already very essential, this scheme. It's it's only in its third year now, so it hasn't been going for that long. And the reason uh, we established it is because the Wheeler Centre's been going for 10 years now. We have we live and breathe writers and we live and breathe to help writers in Victoria and across the country. And we've seen how bloody hard it is to make it as a writer in this country. I mean, it's hard anywhere, but in Australia it's such a tiny market that it makes it very, very hard for even a well-established writer to get published, let alone make any money from their writing. It's a really, really hard slog. So to take that initial gamble to even commit to start to writing something is a really big because you're not guaranteed of getting published, you're not guaranteed of even getting a return phone call from the people you send your manuscript out to. So sometimes it can be really, really hard to convince yourself to make the time and the space to do it. And as with everything else, it just got that little bit harder for writers. Mm. So, yeah. So how do the how do writers need support? Like what what is it that other professions maybe have that writers lack? Uh, writers, well. <laughs> In other professions, you do have a shot at actually being paid a regular wage and quite a decent wage to do what you love. Um, With writing, uh, that's very, very rare. There's a handful of people in this country that really get to do that. Most writers have another job or, you know, two jobs going at the same time, Um, which, again, is sort of another reason why writers are being disproportionately impacted by what's going on because they often have casual jobs. They have casual jobs in the hospital industry. They have casual jobs in, say, a bookstore, which hasn't been open at the moment. So at the moment they're consumed with just putting food on the table, let alone, you know, 
locking the door and and burying themselves in the study to start writing, that can feel like a real luxury. Mm. This scheme is first and foremost first and foremost about giving them the time and the space to commit to that writing without feeling like they're being indulgent. Um, We set them up for a year, we match them with a mentor who they have a relationship with over that year who helps them through all the different stages of writing, uh, whether they need help with editing, whether they need help with just motivation and establishing a regular writing practice. Then we we also give them $15,000 across the year uh, which at the moment is, you know, uh, pretty enticing. So that can mean that they maybe don't need that second job for a while or they can work one day less a week um, or it's just um, a sign of affirmation. It's telling them you're good enough for this, you're worth, it's worth committing to this. You, mm. you can do this for the year. Like this is a serious pursuit. So that is the sort of shape of their year, but they also get to, because there's 10 of them are selected and they also get to sort of support each other. They get support from their peers. That 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 cohort of 10 becomes a really close gang that has a lot to do with each other over the year, which also becomes like a bit of a, can be a bit of a therapy group if they need it because most mm. <laughs> understand the lonely pursuit of writing. Who are the, the mentors who you've got involved and how, how did they come to be involved? Uh, we we decided to shoot for the stars and and ask some of the biggest names in Australian literature, and it turns out most of them said yes. Wow! So it's pretty amazing. I mean, we start with the ten participants. We ask them, okay, who do you admire? Who mirrors your work? Who do you draw inspiration from? Who do you, who would you love to work with? Um, and then we approach those people on their behalf. So. Just for, for an example, we have a, a new judging lineup this year, four incredible judges, and they are Nam Lee, Maria Tamarkin, Tony Birch, and Alison Whitaker. So incredible names. And they coincidentally were all mentors in the first year of this scheme. So that's oh. a bit of a mark of how committed these writers are to this scheme and how much they back this scheme. So it, it's pretty amazing. And they, most of those mentors, even from year one, are still in touch with their writers. Uh, depending on what stage they're at, some writers are at the point where they're putting their work out into the world, they're talking to publishers, a couple of people have already been signed, and they're still in touch with those mentors and their mentors are coaching them through that process because, you know, you're not finished once you've sent your manuscript off. There's a whole other world out there that you need to brace yourself and prepare yourself for and that's big part of that is selling your work and getting out into the world selling which of course just got a little bit more difficult for us yeah what what is the application process so there's a minor matter of 10,000 words so <laughs> not for the faint-hearted you have to you have to be a pretty committed writer um mm. some people have had 10,000 words in their bottom drawer for years and they're itching to put it out there some people we know for a fact who did make it into the scheme were finishing it off finishing off their 10,000 words the night before. Mm. Uh, pressure makes diamonds and some people really thrive on a deadline. Mm. So you do you need 10,000 words. Um, it can be fiction, non-fiction, graphic novel, poetry, prose. Um, so for poetry in a graphic novel, that's slightly different, but um, all the details are on the website. Uh, you also need a letter of support, and that's from anybody who has witnessed you 
across your writing practice. So just someone who can put their hand up and say, yep, you know, I, I, you know, I'm willing to say that this person is really committed and I reckon they'll be really committed to the next year if they get into this scheme. So it can be a teacher or an employer, but it can also it can be your mum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and can you, you can, can you nominate other people? You can. There is a nomination process because some people don't relish the thought of putting themselves forward. They feel a bit icky about telling the world how excellent they are which we totally get. So you can be nominated by somebody else and that kind of just puts a little bit of distance between you and the application process if it makes it easier for you. Mm. But there is something clarifying about applying for something, isn't it? It hones what you want and why you want it and even if you're not successful, it's usually a beneficial process. Absolutely. And, you know, we've we've had feedback from people over the years who haven't necessarily been successful but... Um, have said that sort of thing. They've, they've, it really made them think through what they want and why they're doing it. Um, and for each of the years so far, the judging team, the amazing judging team, who've all, you know, made up of people like, um, in the past, Benjamin Law, Christos Cholkis, um, incredible, incredible writers, they've actually written a letter collectively to the people who didn't get in telling them to keep going and to keep working at it and to give them a bit of inspiration and a bit of guidance. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty um, it's a pretty special scheme and it's, it's also as well about elevating stories that might not, not, might not necessarily be told. Um, so it's about uh, elevating stories that the publishing industry might not be able to take a risk on now, whether it's, you know, a first-time writer or someone from... Um, a marginalised community, it's it's also about keeping that front and centre as well. And I think in the last few weeks with what's gone on with the US and the self-examination that's prompted here, I think that we're reminded of how important that storytelling is and how, how reading different perspectives is so important and it tells us who we are and it gives us context. And so the scheme is a, a big part of that as well and we're really proud of the writers that have been involved so far. Yeah, and I guess it's a scheme that keeps on giving even after the year's over because of all the connections you've made. And Absolutely, and we, we always say, look, you know, it doesn't end, you know, on the dot after 12 months. Like, we keep in contact with everyone, they keep in contact with each other. So we're really running, we've got 20, we've got 10 this year, we've got 10 from the year before. We're running like a mini school at this stage. Mm. We'll have mm. 30 by the end of it, so it's <laughs> pretty amazing. Wow. And it's, I guess it's bittersweet that it's necessary, um, but it is desperately valued. So uh, the next chapter's call out for applications is open till uh, August 10? That's right. All right. And to so find get out- your 9,000, 10,000 words done. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, and to find out more, head to thenextchapter.wheelerscentre.com. And we've been speaking to Head of Publishing at the Wheeler Centre, Sophie Black. Oh, I wish we could talk all morning. Stay here, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hang out. No worries. Catch you at the news. Triple R. Uh, we go on <clears throat> holidays next week, uh, which is we're all very excited about. Um Sarah's got some plans. Daniel and I don't really have any plans, but we're very excited to be going on holiday. <laughs> so um, I thought uh, I might write a choose-your-own-adventure <gasps> about what could happen on our holidays. Um, 
Although when writing it, um, there are no, I'll just start by saying there are no good outcomes. (laughs) So, sorry. Choose your own misery. Yeah. Yeah, I may may even change the title. Oh, ISO's getting you down, mate. (laughs) Yeah, well, just... Just, well, I found a theme and I stuck to it. Thank you. Really? How's about this? Jez comes on before we go on air this morning and tells us a story about how she had a dream about towels. That's, that's, yeah. that's where I was. I stayed in a hotel and people were coming to stay and oh, they'd God. used all my towels and there was no clean towels. It was really annoying. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> choose your own adventure. <clears throat> I don't, choose your own misery. <clears throat> Let's begin. Um, and you guys can do it together. Like there's, I started when I started. I was going to write one, one each for you, and then yeah. it's a lot of work writing, <laughs> writing one of these. I woke up extra early this morning so I could finish writing it, and I'm doubtful about its whether it's good or not. But <laughs> anyway, get on with it. Okay. <clears throat> It's Friday morning at 9.05am. You feel relaxed and content. Work is done and holidays have begun. On your way out, you find a box of disposable gloves that have free written on on them with black texture. Do you, A, take the box and put them in your bag without wondering where they came from and who put them there because obviously it's just someone that's been nice. B, Leave the box where it is because you have no idea where it came from and who put it there. Who knows? Maybe someone licked them. Uh, Look, I I think A, um, but I'm happy to be persuaded if you want to go with B, Sarah. You can go A and if, you know. Yeah, I'm taking them. They're free. I think they'll come in handy. I initially was thinking A, but you know what? There's gloves everywhere. I'm, I'm more worried about what someone's done to them. And the licking. So I'm going to go B. But do we have to choose the same adventure or should I just go A with Daniel for now? Just go with A with All right. Daniel for All now. All right. I'll be adventurous because it's an adventure. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, I won't right. worry about yeah. germs for once. All right. Here we go. A, uh, with the box um, – With the box of free gloves safely in your bag, you head off. Just as you walk out the door, you hear someone yelling out to you. You turn to find Bree chasing after you. She looks angry and is sweating and coughing, but between coughs you can make out she's saying, (coughs) my gloves. You pull the box of gloves from your bag and realise they say Bree, not Bree. You hand them over and Bree explains that because she has the virus, she's been trying to be better at not spreading it, but she's having a bad day. She then stood really close to you telling you about her bad day for 15 minutes and you were too nice to do anything about 15 it. 15 minutes? Bree. Bree. gives you the virus and your holidays are spread in ISO with no internet. The end. You want to go back to B? You're told you not yeah. to take the gloves. Yeah, I'm sorry. More cautious right. next time. B, <clears throat> you leave the box and head out the door. You need to stop at the supermarket to get some supplies for the road trip. Your partner is at home and is doing all the packing. You've given them strict instructions on what to pack, but you question whether you trust them to do it. At the supermarket, you grab A, a punnet of blueberries and a can of kombucha, B, mixed lollies and a bag of popcorn. What do I get? Yeah. 
A or B? A, a bun of blueberries in a can of kombucha, or B, mixed lollies in a bag of popcorn? B. Always B. Yeah. Daniel? Well, you know, I'm I'm A, but but we'll go we'll go B. Okay. For the road I'll trip, read... Daniel, it's not for dinner. You're not going to eat kombucha on a while you're in the car. You know, I like kombucha. It yeah. makes me feel like a beer, you, and you just, that's what I want on a road trip. You just spoon I'm it just... out of a jar on a road trip. <laughs> Let's have a look at A anyway. <laughs> a, a pint of blueberries and a can of kombucha. Oh. You head to the checkout, but before you get there, you realise that you what you have won't be enough, so you grab some popcorn and lollies as well. Oh. <laughs> um, when you arrive home, uh, everything is packed. Do you, A, ask your partner if they remembered everything, going through each thing on your list, B, trust that your partner has nailed the packing and help them put everything in the car? Um, B. because I'm lazy. Cool. Uh, B, let's see if I um, wrote this out correctly. Um, oh, yeah. Hang on. I thought he's not coming with us, is she? No. <laughs> no, 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 you head off and you hey, I can't remember which 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 one this is. Um, oh, no, this is uh, – we'll go back to it anyway. Uh, so you head off. Um, uh, a few hours later, you arrive at your destination. Um, it is beautiful. The house you have booked is set amongst rolling hills on one side and deep bushland on the other. Inside, there is an exquisite fireplace and a huge bed and a basket of treats. Tucked in amongst the treats is an envelope that has, would you like to play a game, written on it. <laughs> Curious, you open it to find out more. There is a note that says there are a selection of board games on the bookshelf, but if you wanted something more exciting, exciting, you should look in the drawer. Do you, A... Head for the bookshelf. B, look in the drawer. Look in the drawer. Yeah, have to. Ooh, okay. And you know that I wouldn't look in the drawer, but look in the drawer. All right, all right. You look, you look in the drawer and there is a button that says zombie release above it. Do you, A, press the button, B, don't press the button? I, I think I'm not pressing the button. Don't press the button, B? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You decide not to press a button, but your partner has other ideas and leans over <laughs> you and presses the button. Oh, well. A hidden door is open <laughs> to reveal a selection of weapons. You barely have time to choose one before the zombies start climbing the stairs from the basement. You make it out after knocking off a few heads. Once outside, you both run for the hills. There's a small cottage in the distance. You can see a light inside and smoke coming from the chimney. With the zombies not far behind you, you head for the cottage. After banging on the door, a man opens it. where He's wearing an old blanket and is holding a lemsip. You run inside and lock the door behind you. Zombies, the old man asks. Yes, you reply. Righto, he says as he calmly walks to the next room and returns with a rocket launcher. He opens the door and launches a rocket that kills all the zombies. There are hugs and cheers all around, but the old man has the virus and he passes it on to you both, <laughs> you, to both you and your partner, and you spend all ISO together in the hills with stinky dead zombies. The end. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Yes, that's right. Uh, welcome back. And it is time for the uh, weekly quiz. 
Maybe maybe we'll call it the Breakfast's Breakdown Quiz. No. It's like a breakdown of the week. Not us having breakdowns because it's the end of the week. could be double because a breakdown of our <laughs> mental health because it's the end of the week. And <laughs> we're happy to go on holiday. Um, once again, your contestants are Sarah Smith and Daniel Burt. Uh, would you like to test your buzzers? Sure. Um, mine is winner, winner, chicken dinner because... Oh, God. Um, <laughs> Are we having a chicken dinner soon? Uh, Palmer and Jez right. is not going to be having a chicken dinner tonight. Yeah. Or um, is that uh, okay? Okay. Right. I'm going to the is that aquarium. a seal or a dog? Oh, seal for the aquarium. Oh, okay. I thought you were being a chicken. No. Or <laughs> or yeah. So okay. what? Chicken. Chicken dinner. All right. Let's get the uh, quiz underway. Hang on. Oh no. Hang on. Question number one. (laughs) What is the difference between a sultana and a raisin? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Sarah Smith. A raisin is soaked in alcohol. Also, Tana is a seedless grape with some other ex- bits to do with it that are just dried out, but it's not soaked in alcohol. Mm. Daniel, do you have any? No, I'm, no I'm going to. I'll, in... I'll give the point to Sarah. Yeah. That's, you gave good information there. God, the um, answer was nearly as long as her buzzer. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, uh, yeah, a raisin is a, a yeah, it has been soaked in alcohol before being aired. And then uh, Sultana is just air-dried. It's a white seedless grape that has been air-dried. There you go. Um, <laughs> question number two. <laughs> album of the week is RTJ4. Name two collaborators on that album. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Yes. Mavis Staples and Josh Homme. Two points to – one point to Sarah – and gives it um, two all together, um, would have also accepted some other artists, but they <laughs> those two are correct. Um, Pharrell um, was one of them, like from memory. Anyway, uh, question. Hang on. I don't think we get enough of that music. Question number three. <laughs> The National Summit to examine worsening bushfire conditions and climate change was held on Tuesday night. Who was the host? Oh, Daniel. Kerry O'Brien. Correct. Yeah. Daniel is on the board. I kind of felt bad, so I held back a little bit. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, sure. <laughs> I did. I had a big crush on Kerry O'Brien. So I oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> What is special about Daniel's Esky? You know Daniel? your own one. It's, it's bear proof. Correct. Right. It is bear What does that even mean? Like, it does means it have they a... can't, yeah, Bears I, I can't know. get okay. in. It's a, it's a combination lock. They can never get the combination right. Couldn't have left. <laughs> <laughs> The um, the Wheeler Centre, um, the next chapter, application requires you to write how many words? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Sarah. 10,000. 
Correct. Mm. Ooh, here we go. Ne- nearly the length of one of Sarah's answers. <laughs> <as well. laughs> oh no, we've got an ad. <laughs> uh, no more music. Have a break. Um, fair enough. Um, <clears throat> question uh, number six. Who was Scott Morrison's favourite musician and named three of their tracks? Oh, I can answer part of this. Winner, well, winner, let's chicken. hear it. Oh, winner, yeah. winner, chicken dinner, Tina Arena, yeah. I'm in Chains, Sorrento Moon, and mm-hmm. um, the one that Daniel made the joke about when he read the news. <laughs> um, I don't want to Google this and cheat, mm. but it was there was a pun... Oh, I can't remember. Daniel? Half a point. Damn it. Uh, I can't remember either. You you made the joke about the song. I know. And once it's done, it's (laughs) done. I can't. Can you give us a hint? Oh, no, because I can't remember what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, that was pretty close. Yeah, I'll give you the point. Yeah. Yeah, Give Sarah the point. Um. Uh. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember the song. Wasn't it good? That was a joke. Yeah, wasn't it good? That's right about the job keeper. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, okay. Point is for Sarah. Question um, number seven. Um. Uh. What is another way of saying panda? Oh, Daniel, this oh, one. you've got to take this one. Or, or, um, well, it was a seven-year-old bamboo cruncher. Correct. <laughs> well done, Daniel. I thought there were a few gifts in here for you, Daniel, but you haven't. <laughs> oh, no. I've flubbed them. Order. I have. Mm. I think your, um, your buzzer puts you. I think you forget the sound that your buzzer makes. Yeah. Uh, question number eight. Um what was the outcome in all of the endings of the Choose Your Own Adventures that I wrote? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Sarah. We all get coronavirus and have to spend yeah. our holidays in isolation. It's correct. <laughs> uh, question uh, number nine. Uh, what type of bird did Birdman see in Carlton? Uh, winner, winner, chicken dinner. Mm? It was an owl. What type of owl? I'll swoop in here. I, oh. Yeah. Oh, oh. That's it a was... point to Daniel for a great. No! That's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is it a, a tawny frog mouth? No. no. It wasn't. Oh, you bastard. What, what did you say, Sarah? No, I just knew it wasn't a tawny frog mouth. I just knew it was right. an owl. Mm. I, I oh, can't well. believe I don't get the point for that. It was a boo book owl. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that was a tough one. Yeah. Sorry. <clears throat> okay. Question number 10. Who is filling in for us next week? Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Sarah. Daniel James, Nat Harris and Rachel Short. Correct. Beautiful. I'm going to give you this one more question. Right. It was going to be a tiebreaker, but Sarah's already won. Yeah, it's Sorry. I tried to give you space this time, Daniel. Uh, I I was too busy doing the claps with the seal as well. It was a whole performance. Uh, Question number 11. 
what noise does Sarah make when giving a blood sample? Oh, I've forgotten. <laughs> no, it's not that. What noise do you make? I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, Sarah wins the. All wins right, the well win. done. Uh, that was it. Um, we're going to be taking off two for a week, so you're not going to hear us uh, for a week on air. But uh, we'll be back shortly, no doubt. You've been listening to a podcast, The, the Best Bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. They're still going. <laughs>